Genesis called Designed for Dominion, Reclaiming Your Place in God's Plan. And we're in the place in Genesis where we start to talk about the evil on the earth. And we're in um, a series starting these next four weeks will be on the book, on the, the story of Noah, the story of Noah. And you probably heard this story as a child. You've probably heard it many times, but today we're going to look at it in these next four four weeks in great detail. And the story, the title of the sermon today is Hatred and Love. Hatred and Love. And I use this title today because I think it's really important that we see this, uh, this theological opposites, that hatred versus love. You know, it's really, they're opposites, but you can measure one by the other. You can measure love by what you're willing to overcome to experience it. Julie and I are traveling today, and we are uh, loving going to see our kids more than the hatred of flying. Amen? It's a pain to do. And you shouldn't complain. You're going 500 miles an hour, right? But it's a pain. You love your house probably more than the pain of paying for it. Maybe just barely, right? Every month you're like, man, this got to do. Man, this insurance got high. But I still like to live here. I'd like to have a place to live. You, If you're a clean freak, nod your head. No one's admitting it. No, there's a couple. Yeah, if you're a clean freak, you love a clean house more than you love the pain of keeping it clean, right? You're excited about it. Maybe you even enjoy it. It's not painful at all. It's a joy for you to bring it. Um, my favorite smiling face in the back. Um, but love is measured really by the pain that you're willing to overcome. That's why when people are dating and they're expressing love for one another, they invariably express it with expensive meals and gifts. And really, you, you can't really measure love without there being some cost to it. My favorite example is my daughter is uh, just, uh, this is, she's got a week to go before she gives birth. Now, I've heard that hurts. I've heard there's some pain involved. I've witnessed some pain involved. I've seen some pain involved, but I've not experienced it. But a pregnant woman, she loves that child so much she's willing to endure that pain. And the pain of the pregnancy and all the hassles that go along with it and then the actual delivery. Love's always expressed that way. There's always a sense of if there's no cost, is there any love? That's why early courtship's exciting, right? It's all fun. There's no pain. Everything's great. We're just getting along. Hey, but when you start to have struggles and you start to realize that life is hard, find out if there really is any love there. The story of Noah illustrates God's love compared to God. Things that he hates, the evil that he hates, his love overcomes in the story of Noah. And that's what we'll be looking at for the next four weeks. We'll start today, we'll be in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, but to lead up to that, we have to set the stage. And here at First Baptist Church of Delray, we try not to skip anything. We go through the Bible, and we are going to kind of summarize a few things here because it's They take a long time to read through, but it is important. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 17 
really kind of starts the lead-in into the story of Noah. Chapter 4, verse 17. We've just seen the story of Cain and Abel. We've seen the story of two offerings and how one was just kind of an offering, but one was special. We saw the, the difference between ordinary and special and how important it is that our worship is special, that Jesus is special, that he's not just ordinary. But then the rest of verse of chapter 17, 17 through um, 4, 17 through 24, talks about the line of Cain. Cain is, is, goes out from the presence of the Lord, and uh, there's a mark on him, there's a curse on him, and he really leaves the presence of the Lord, but God doesn't abandon him. He still uses his family to do some really cool stuff. They make instruments, musical instruments. Also, one of his descendants made, is the first one to actually make tools made out of metal. So there's some things that are done, even through Cain. God still has grace and love for Cain. And then in verse 25 of chapter 4, Adam's line and the worshipers of God continue. Genesis 4.25 says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed Abel. To Seth also was born, a son was born, he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Really important for us to see that in this journey, that Adam and Eve lose their son Abel, Cain then goes out from the presence of the Lord, but God blesses him with another son named Seth, and his offspring call upon the name of the Lord. And that's a, a way to say they, they turn to God, they worship God, they don't try to avoid God. There is worship that continues through the line of Seth, and we'll see why that's important in just a few moments. Chapter 5 is a long genealogy, and it's the story of 10 different men and how they grow their family. And each one is listed, and it says, and Seth lived so many years, and he bore a son, and then he lived so many years after that, and then he died. And that pattern goes on and on and on, and you're like, this sounds kind of like a dirge. And this person was born, and they died. This person was born, and they died, and they died. It really reminds us that God told us in the garden that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And that's what happens. They die one after another. But also, if you read that genealogy, and I would encourage you to do that, it's crazy how long they actually live. It's like an average of like 900 years. I'm 61. 900 seems really long. How many, I mean, do you really want to live 900, 900 years on earth? I don't know, man. I think Chick-fil-A would get old eventually, don't you? I mean, I, I think some of the things you'd be like, man, nine, 900 years. And some people think, well, that's not really 900 years. It's just the, the, the length of their house or their descendants was not. That really doesn't add up because we know that um, Noah lived over 600 years. That's when he built the ark. So it really appears they did live really long lives. Oh, but it's it's cool. There's one guy in there, and I gotta I gotta highlight this. Genesis 5:23 says that thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. In the midst of this dirge of death, really, there is one guy who doesn't 
See, there's all these little hints in Genesis that look forward to a defeat of death, and it's just, it's just random in there. We don't really know why it's in there. It just says, and Enoch walked with God, and, and God took him. But death will be conquered by God. See this again later with the prophet Elijah, the second prophet. It's interesting how God puts that in there. There will be a victory over death. And Enoch walked with God and he didn't die. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is where we'll spend our time today. This section describes the extent of evil on the earth in Noah's day. And more importantly, God's response to it. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 1, says this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them, and those were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. What in the world is he talking about? I don't know. Um, doesn't it seem like this is a crazy thing? What is, what is, who are these people? Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of man? Who are the Nephilim? Who are the mighty men of renown? What are we talking about? I don't understand what's going on here. Well, there's a couple of things we need to see here. And the first thing we need to answer is who are the sons of God? Now, there's a couple of different theories, and they're both important, and they'll kind of inform our interpretation. But uh, one interpretation is the sons of God refer to creatures that God himself created and that these must be angels. It's clear in the book of Job that the sons of God are angels. Job is a very early book, possibly the most early book written, and that these are the sons of God are angels. And in this case, it's referring to fallen angels. Fallen angels are demons. They are creatures that God created himself. They, um, they are spirit beings, and a third of them fell with the rebellion of Satan and were removed from heaven. Now, if you've never heard this, I'm blowing your mind right now, but this is, this is part of uh, biblical history. And so one, one interpretation is that the, the sons of men are demons and that they see these beautiful uh, daughters of men and that the demons take on a body, possibly a male body, much like Satan took on the serpent's body, and they marry these women and they produce offspring, which some people early would think that, well, maybe these are actually demons slash humans, half human, half demon. That's probably not the case because they seem to be completely flesh. So what we might have here is demon-possessed men marrying and raising offspring that are very evil and likely demon-possessed themselves, and that these may have been the Nephilim, the giants, the men of renown, these incredibly uh, powerful creatures, uh, powerful humans that were wreaking havoc all over the earth. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 20 gives some support to this, and it says this, it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Again, what is he talking about? Jesus died to pay for sin. His body is in the grave. His spirit, though, is outside of his body, and his, Peter is saying his spirit went and proclaimed the victory that he had won or was about to win over death to spirits that were in prison. And the reason they were in, in prison is they ha- because of what they had done in the time of Noah. So what happened in Noah's day, the, the evil spirits were so bad that God put them in prison in anticipation of the day talked about in Revelation where God would cast all evil spirits and the devil himself into a permanent prison, the lake of fire. Everybody with me so far? Incredible. Crazy to think about. Here's Jesus proclaiming victory to these who were trying to destroy humankind, who were trying to destroy God's humans. You might be wondering, why are these demons in prison? If, if some demons are in prison, why aren't all demons in prison? I mean, that would be great, wouldn't it? We wouldn't have any of this demonic influence. That would be great. Well, understand that what God is doing is God is limiting evil. And he still does limit evil. But evil does have its place because it, in comparison, the love of God is so amazing. And it provides for humans a choice follow Satan or to follow Jesus. A second interpretation that's also very early that was uh, purported by Augustine and Luther and Calvin is this, that actually the, the sons of God are the sons of Seth or Sethites, that they were the ones who called on the name of the Lord and that the daughters of man were the daughters of Cain. So you have the godly people and the ungodly people and they are intermarrying. This is uh, uh, prohibited throughout the Old Testament. Don't marry someone who's not one of God's people. And we still greatly encourage people, if you're going to get married, make sure you're marrying someone who's following Jesus. Probably the most important thing you need to know is what is their life like in terms of following Jesus when you're going to marry someone. And so because intermarriage was happening back then and, and so that the godly was corrupted by the ungodly and so incredible awful evil was taking place. Both interpretations have value. So you may wonder, well, what do we know then? Well, here's what we know. There's no doubt an incredible amount of Satan and demonic activity at that time. Evil was very, very, very bad. Um, Intermarriage was likely taking place. God's people were being deluded, and there was really almost none of God's people left. Nobody who's worshiping. But in the midst of this, God starts his judgment. In verse 3, let's go back to that. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. God is saying because of this evil, because of the evil that's happening, because of this population growth, and the more humans we have, it seems like the more evil we have, I'm going to limit lifespan to 120 years. I'm going to stop this. And in reality, after this, Moses lives to be 120 years. Now, Abraham lives to be 175. It's not saying that you can never live beyond that. 
But after the flood, there is certainly a great reduction in lifespan. We don't see anyone living to be 300, 400, 500, 900 years old. Lifespan is reduced, and this is likely because after the flood, as we'll talk about in coming weeks, the atmosphere has changed dramatically because of the difference in the content of moisture in the air. Uh, this is more scientific than we need to be, but understand there is more exposure to sun's rays, which is likely why lifespan decreased. This is what God told them would happen. Now, some would say that the, the 120 years is a warning that judgment is coming, that indeed the flood is coming, and you've got 120 years. I'm not going to put up with man for more than that, which I think there's some validity to that, but clearly... Uh, primarily what it means is because lifespan did decrease dramatically is that there will be a, um, a limit to how long people will live and it will be much different than it was before the flood. Verse 5. And this is really how God feels. And I want you to get into this and start to understand how God feels about the evil. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And let me just say this. He doesn't say the wickedness of the evil spirit. He is, the, never say the devil made me do it. Evil is a human decision. It is a human condition. It is human in nature. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a heavy verse. God looks down and sees every intention contrary to me every intention this is the human heart verse 6 and the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart so the Lord said I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I'm sorry that I have Wickedness is everywhere. There is no sense of love. There is no sense of caring for others. There is no one, almost no one, worshiping God. And that idea, that phrase, that the Lord regretted making man on earth, it haunts people. That I regret that I made man on earth. You say, well, did God make a mistake? Is he saying, I shouldn't have done that? I wouldn't, you know, is not that he made a mistake it's just that he's feeling the weight of evil on earth and he's expressing how much he hates the evil that man is uh, is embracing and the closest thing i think we could get to as humans and I, I don't even think this gets there but would be to say that you raise a child and you raise them in a certain way, and when they grow up, they totally abandon everything you ever raised them to be. And in the midst of that, they are even disrespectful and hateful to you. And I know parents that face that, and some of you may be facing that today. And I think when we face those kinds of things, it reminds us how God feels when we abandon him. Evil is a very big deal for God. And it's interesting that God was going to wipe out the animals as well. It's a reminder that evil always has collateral damage. 
We often think, well, I can do this, I can do that, I can embrace evil. It's not going to affect any. It always affects other people. It always affects other things. There's always more cost than the cost that I have to bear. There's always collateral damage. This is the first time we really see how God feels about evil. He expresses his heart. In the garden, you saw the the sin and you saw the curse of the serpent. It was curse of the woman, curse of the man. But then you see God's covering. You see God still has a purpose and a plan and a blessing and assignment for them. And he, he blesses them by sacrificing animals. He shed blood, producing a cover. Again, to cover their sin, their nakedness. It, it was a way to look forward to what Jesus would ultimately do. These verses are really just God anticipating what it would cost ultimately for his people. He's looking forward to that time when Jesus will be bearing that pain in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is there saying, God, my God, is there some other way? And he's, he's, he's as he's praying, great Drops of blood are coming from him as he's just so, so intense on this. And he's bearing that pain of an innocent person who's paying for everyone else's sin. That's what I think God is seeing. He knows it's coming. And what's interesting is that if he chose to actually wipe them all out, there'd be no cries for justice. There would be no pain on the cross. Right now, he could wipe them all out, but he always has a remedy. Chapter 6, verse 8, God's word says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All this evil, but there's one man, Noah, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah's in the line of Seth. He's a worshiper of God, and it's not that Noah is without sin. that that again is it going off again i'll try not to move my head i guess how we doing anyway matt how you doing you doing okay uh anna you doing good rick are you okay noah's not perfect but he is usable he is a worshiper of god no matter how evil the rest of the world is, God still has his people. He still has someone that he can use to help save the world. Let me ask you, honestly, don't nod your head, but do you almost, can you identify with Noah? You know, are you thinking, I'd be Noah. Everyone else would be sinning. Everyone else would be doing awful things, but I wouldn't be doing that. That's all those other evil people. All those other evil people do stuff. But I'm in church. I'm a church guy. I, I wouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. Yes, you. If we burst your bubble, you wouldn't be Noah. You wouldn't be. See, there isn't anyone who's perfect. Noah, even if you're Noah, he is still infected with the disease of sin. And he will carry this through the flood, unfortunately, as we'll see. In about three weeks, there is no one that is perfect. 
No matter how good you feel about your life today, just listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. It says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. The most godly person in here is not righteous at all. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You've got to feel that. If you never feel your sin, you have no need for Jesus. He didn't need to die for you. You have to feel that today. God, I deserve to drown. I don't deserve baptism. I deserve drowning, right? Noah found favor in God's eyes as one he could use. What can we learn from this flood? What can we learn from this flood? What can we take from it? Here's what I want us to really delve deep into. The fundamental message of this passage is that God hates evil almost as much as he loves humans and humanity. He hates it. He hates it so much, so much. But he loves humanity. He loves you and me. We have to understand both sides of that. Somebody say, well, God is love, and he, he loves me no matter what, but he hates evil, hates it severely, terrible. It's awful. And he grieves at that. He grieves at the deepest level over human evil and how far it removes us from him. God, the God of the universe, he grieves over your evil? He grieves over lost relationships. He longs to be close to you. He longs for you to be close to him. And he grieves over lost blessings that humans could have enjoyed. Over what he would like to give, what he would like to give, but he refused because of evil. He grieves over the fact that humans love what is not good and reject what he wants to give that's good. He grieves over the disrespect and the pride of a people who think they deserve to be on his team. You know what that's like? See, every time we say no to God, we're saying, God, I'm on your level at least, and maybe I'm even above your level, because even though you want me to do this, I want to do this, and I, I, I know better. You ever said no to God? You ever said no to God? When you're saying, God, I know better, I, I have the ability to make that decision. God searches. In the midst of all that evil, he searches for one who can save. One who will respond. I love Second Chronicles 16.9. My dad taught me as a kid. It says, for the eyes of the Lord search to and throughout the whole world 
searching for one whose heart is loyal towards him so that he may show himself strong on your behalf. The eyes of the Lord are searching right now, even this congregation in this room, for one whose heart will be loyal to him, who will respond to him, not one who is good, but one who will respond to him and recognize, I don't want anything other than you. I don't want evil. I want you, Lord. See, God knows that one day he's going to stamp out evil. He knows that. And he knows that one day he's going to have to send his son back in, back in Noah's time. He knows that one day he's going to send his son to pay this horrible price, and yet he still lets Noah live. Oh, how much grace we have for that. How much grace we have for that. God hates evil almost as much as he loves you. Are you embracing that this morning? embracing it because God loves you. I ask that question because that's our nature. That's our human nature is to constantly be embracing the things that God hates. See, there was no hope for the people who weren't a part of Noah's family and seeing the coming age. There's no hope for them. And in the same way, there's no hope for anyone who's not a part of Jesus. There's no hope. To be swept away in the flood. Oh, but Jesus has paid. He's paid for your voucher. He's paid for your ticket onto the boat. But you have to show up at the boat. It doesn't mean no one's here. It's not something you can pull off the wall. You have to show up before him and say, I nature is evil. I, I just think of evil things all the time. I want the price that you paid for me, Jesus. You paid for me right there. It's already done. I just have to, I just have to ask for it to count for something. Have you received your ticket for the ark? Have you received your, your voucher? It's up to you. You can hear this message you have the opportunity to receive from Jesus what he paid for. Now, some of you may have done this years ago. You've received it, but you haven't been living that way. And you're feeling very far from God right now. And I want to encourage you, don't, don't let that happen. His arms are outstretched, but they won't be outstretched forever. The time is really short. You don't have time to say, I'm going to do this tomorrow. Because if you're living far from God and if you're embracing the things that are evil to him, you may have never, you may have never truly received it. You may just be acting like everybody else. See, repentance is the lifestyle of following Jesus. It should be a part of our daily life. It's when we pridefully stand up and say, I don't really need God. I really know what's best. I can make my own rules. That's when we are so far from God. We don't know if we belong to him or not. We don't need to live that way. We don't need to live that way. Jesus paid for you to be in his family. You can be in his family too. Would you pray with me? God, this passage is humbling.
We confess, Lord, that we think of ourselves as good. We think of ourselves as Noah. God, we, we even think at times that we're smart enough to make up our own rules, Lord, that we're on your level. Oh, forgive us for this, Lord. We're not good. But you are. And your love for us is so great, so amazing, so deep, so willing to endure pain. God, how could we reject you? How could we refuse? How could we not repent and say, Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin? I, I just have evil thoughts all the time. God, for those who've never received your salvation, Lord, I pray that today would be the day. Lord, I pray against the spirit that would say, wait, 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 no, there's no time to wait. You're here. Your arms are wide open. May we all fall into them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with us as you sing. Oh, the perfect Son of God and all His innocence here walking in the dirt with you and me knows what living is he's acquainted with our grief man of sorrow and son of suffering blood and tears how can it be there's a god who weeps there's a god who bleeds oh praise the one Glory to God forever, your cross. 
thank you so much for being a part of worship. If you, need, if you have questions, you're saying, I, I, I need to understand what God is doing, this is the time. I'll be right down here in front. Some of our leaders will be with you. If you have questions, we so want to interpret what God is doing. We're not trying to convince people. We're just trying to help them understand what Jesus is doing in their heart. Thank you so much for being a part of worship today. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Jesus. We don't deserve him at all. None of us do. But he came. He paid the awful price for my sin, for our sin. Lord, thank you. Thank you. We praise you, Jesus. In your name we pray.